And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This week, we're celebrating a huge milestone for the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. We have reached our 100th episode since our founding in March of 2020. The success of our show would not be possible without our listeners and our dedicated and articulate tree-loving guests. We've had some incredible guests. Tell me about a couple of your favorites, Eva. Well, I really enjoyed uh, touching base with my former colleague that I worked with, Dr. John Yang in China. I felt that his interview was incredibly poignant, uh, talking about the treeing of Beijing for the Beijing Olympics and the work that he's been doing there is just astounding. And to be able to talk with him, like I used to pop into his office at the university and, and chat with him, I felt really closely connected. And I just really appreciate the fact that he was on. That's great. Yeah, he was terrific. Yeah. And another one that I feel really close to, because I, I lived in England for a year and studied over there, was uh, Kevin Martin from Q Gardens. Uh, having uh, an arborist like him on was quite dynamic. And Kevin Martin being the top at at Q, overseeing the trees, the collections there are, they're irreplaceable. From historic records uh, that go back to uh, plant explorers. And that to me is is really an amazing interview. Yeah, he was great. And another one, of course, the person that we started our podcast with, who I've known for years is Mindy Maslin, who started the tree tenders at the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society. That program has gone nationwide. People have been looking at it globally because it has worked so well. The citizenry of planting trees in your community, giving people the sense of ownership of trees in the Philadelphia area is, is invaluable. And to make the everyday person feel they're connected with their their green spaces. Yeah, she was great and uh, just a fantastic person to kick off the podcast back in early uh, 2020. Yeah. So those are my three favorites. What about yours? Well, I want to say I think all of our hundred guests rank as favorites. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but they have gifted us with their knowledge and. Uh, You often hear about chasing a magical chestnut tree or something. Sometimes with the podcast, it was chasing the magical guest. And one of those was Ed Gilman. Mm, Um, Yes. 
Ed was out there. He had showed interest. It was great to get him on and to hear right from the architect of structural pruning, uh, especially in the midst of various climatic catastrophes that were wreaking havoc with trees. Ed was terrific and articulate and passionate. Equally so was uh, Cliff Drouet. We learned to properly pronounce his name. This is the gentleman, veteran from the armed services, now investing his time and passion and commitment to planting trees on reclaimed mountaintops and strip mines and all the challenges that he has faced and, and things he's figured out. Uh, extraordinary work. And then finally, we had a lot of fun talking to Eliza Greenman, who you know wrote that paper uh, and caught a lot of heat defending Bradford Pears, but it was great to get her on and get those clarifications and also hear about the other things that she's doing with mulberries and heritage apples and things like that. So, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg and uh, you can never stop learning in arboriculture and urban forestry. I think that that's really where it goes with podcasts. Not only are we learning as hosts of the show, but we're also learning from our guests and reading their papers. It's enriching. It's like going to a university class, uh, right. taking taking that information and running with it. Because I've always been a lifelong learner, and I know you have too, that the, the richness that comes from being a podcast host is, I, there, you can't put a value on it. Yeah, it's, it's a gift. It's that, it is a gift. Every guest has shown their passion their wisdom, their commitment to trees and what they can bring to our overheated planet. We've learned so much, and each of the interviews we've done has expanded a, a, what we've started to call a rhizomorphic network of knowledge, yeah. sharing, and problem solving. I would say the Planet Trillion Trees podcast is a, right now, it's a two year old sapling and uh, may it continue to grow and may it continue to get stronger and reach more and more people and become sturdier and finally just become like a well-established tree. And keep adding its growth rings. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This podcast is being recorded on August 26th, 2022. Mike Tofen is the founder and executive director of Project Forest. In October of 2020, Project Forest launched with a mission to create a community of environmentally responsible businesses with a unified mission to rewild the Canadian landscape, one forest at a time. Mike is passionate about restoring disturbed landscapes across Canada, specifically to restore ecological function to non-productive agricultural lands with conservation groups and indigenous communities. An outdoor enthusiast and wildlife advocate, Mike knew early in life that he wanted a job that let him explore nature. As the founder of Project Forest and a professional forester, he's contributed to the reforestation of tens of thousands of hectares across Western Canada during his career. Aside from earning his Bachelor of Science in Forest Business Management, Mike also has a technical diploma in Forest Technology from Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. His happiest moments are in the field, among the trees, where he gets to make an impactful difference 
every day where it matters the most, our environment. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Mike. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. Project Forest is uh, excited to be a part of the conversation, the movement to help with that, you know, planetary goal of planting a trillion trees. Well, when I saw your email, I was so intrigued. I started looking up your information and we noticed how many companies, there's lots of companies that are involved with your organization. And I think that that made this the perfect podcast for our 100th episode. And so I would like to start out by finding out how did you actually get started in forestry in Canada and branch out to your organization that you currently have? Yeah, so my forestry origin stories date back to when I was a scout. Um, went out for kind of an exercise one day. I don't know, I was probably in grade four or five. And one of the other scouts, my buddy's dad, showed up and showed us how to measure trees. And he, he was in a Porsche. And I'm like, oh man, I want to drive a Porsche one day. Not knowing forestry is typically not the route to, to becoming a wealthy individual. But I just really resonated with the forest. And as I got older, I was kind of locked in on a forest trajectory through my high schooling. And my father's a chartered accountant or was a chartered accountant. And he spends all day behind his desk. I'm not necessarily able to be as active as he would like to be. And I wanted to have a career that, you know, paid me to look for cool fishing spots that people didn't get to go to. Um, and then be around other folks that like to have a beer after work. And forestry was just kind of natural transition for me. I really like being outside. Um, I spent some time in the prairies. Obviously, I'm in the office today, and there's no place I'd rather be than spending a day in the field, you know, walking in the trees. So I've, I've made the correct path. But, you know, I, I was really lucky when I was in high school. I knew from when I entered, I knew I didn't need to take physics because it wasn't on the list of required sciences um, going into forestry. So I never did. And, and most people really don't know what they want to do when they get to that stage of life. And I've just kind of been lucky enough that I was correct at a young age. I had cousins who lived in um, Winnipeg and had a yeah. chance to visit that area. And I've had cousins in Toronto, et cetera. And when I got up to Winnipeg, I was absolutely floored how flat it was and how vast it was. And I could understand why you'd want to build forests because it was just flat and it was farm ground as far as you could see. Yeah. And at Project Forest, we work with those agriculture areas, specifically focusing on non-productive agriculture land either owned by conservation groups or partnering up with indigenous communities and then transitioning these areas that produce marginal hay crops at best to a much better productive purpose and bring them back to forests. Um, but yeah, specifically, you, you go east of Edmonton, which is kind of where I'm located, all the way to about an hour east of Winnipeg. It's pretty much flat the whole time unless there's a river. Um, once you go a little bit past an hour east of Winnipeg, you get into the Canadian Shield and it's quite a beautiful part of the country with a rocky moraine with jack pine and lakes everywhere. Fantastic. But it's a long drive between Edmonton and an hour east of Winnipeg before it starts getting scenic again. So when we were preparing, Mike, when we knew you were coming up on the podcast, I, of course, went to your website. And it was a moment where I felt like some dots were being connected for me. And I wonder if you could continue. I think you were starting to go in that direction of, Tell our listeners who might be hearing for the first time 
about corporate responsibility and how that knits to the mission of your company. Because like I said, the dots were connected and some flashing green lights like, oh yeah, this is it. This is rubber meets the road in terms of environment, social and governance, commitment to a corporation's accountability and mission. Yeah, and that, that's a, a great question, Hal. Thanks for asking. Because Project Forest has partners in the publicly traded space and also in the private space. And what corporate social responsibility means to different companies is different. And how Project Forest is able to help corporations solve their ESG or environmental social governments, CSR, corporate social responsibility, or maybe help reduce their corporate carbon footprint is a little bit different depending on the objectives and then how we get to meet and engage with our partners. One of the great examples for us is when a company called Elcana, they've now been bought out by a group called Sundial Growers, but a publicly traded company here in Canada, Toronto Stock Exchange. They own a number of different liquor franchises across the country. And in Canada, there's a big transition away from plastic bags to using paper bags. It's becoming a legislation. And their corporate responsibility connection to Project Force was as we are no longer able to use plastic and we're going to have to start using paper bags again, let's try and offset that with some trees. And let's tell our customers that we're going to be doing that. And prior to kind of having that revelation when partnering up with Alcana, they have a lot of individuals working in a retail environment, not necessarily making, they're not high income earners, part-time jobs, people stocking beer shelves and selling this beer on a Friday night. And they really work hard at building a, a strong corporate culture and showing that their employees work for a really great company. And this was a way that they were communicating internally on an organization that they were going to support. Somebody in the alcohol and marijuana space, in the words of their CEO, we sell booze and dope. And there, there's not a lot of organizations that we're actually able to support. And Project Forest was a perfect alignment. At different partnership levels, we host corporate planting events. And now Canada sent 80 of their employees out over two days. And that really really struck home with me as something we'll get into in a little bit more detail probably later in the conversation. But as their employees came through and got to experience nature and planting trees and some of these folks, I know certainly hadn't been in you know that type of environment before, we changed their life. And, and their company was responsible for giving them that opportunity to plant their first tree, to spend some time in nature for that afternoon. And the more people that we give that experience to, and the more people that have that opportunity to connect, especially through these corporate social responsibility initiatives, that's when we start making this big impact. I mean, the UN has a big, hairy, audacious goal of planting a trillion trees. That's not going to happen unless people come together and create this community. And what Project Force is trying to do is create a community of environmentally responsible businesses working together to help achieve that goal. That's amazing. And just so I was hearing it right, Mike, is it Al Canada? Alcana. Yeah. So Alcana oh, okay. was the company. Um, and then, like I said, there's a number of different franchises under their umbrella, but they were bought out last year by a, another publicly traded company called Sundial Growers. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, if you search Alcana, it'll still pop up, but they're no longer the, the parent name with that organization. Okay. So 70 employees come out. 80. And you give 80 employees come out. And they get the experience of working on depleted, underused agricultural land. And they're planting seedlings. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And I noticed you make a distinction in, in, in uh, your description of your mission. 
that this situation often gets taken advantage of by corporations as a, and it becomes a greenwashing kind of empty gesture. It shows up on the brochure or in the corporate report, whereas 80 employees out there hopefully breaking a sweat and getting their hands dirty means you've influenced this company that we're speaking of. Yeah, yeah, and in a big way. And I'm glad you kind of brought that greenwashing subject up. I just actually had a conversation earlier this morning with another potential partner. We'll just say an online company. And like, hey, Mike, can we just use you to offset our carbon footprint? And Mike, no, it's not a it's not a one and done situation. Right. For for corporations that are seriously invested in making a difference. Yeah. The first step is number one, okay, what's my footprint? And then we, we can, if you're asking me that question, I'm a tree expert, not kind of that math emissions expert, but let, let's do some work. Let's figure out what your emissions are. And then can we make some internal corporate changes? What can we do to reduce our footprint? And I quite often say, if you're really serious about it, you might be able to get 80% of the way there, depending on your company. And then Project Force can come in and get you past that 20%, right? The last 20%, we can get you past the finish line. And for folks that are looking just to use Project Force to completely offset it, that that's kind of like, okay, one dumb, we're not actually doing anything different. We're throwing some money at a problem, hopefully hoping that it goes away. But our, our actual corporate mentality is operations as usual. And, and those are not companies that I'm targeting to become partners with. We're looking for folks that really share that same value set. And, you know, through our conversations, sometimes it's not the right fit. We want the, the partnership to be good for Project Forest. It also has to be good for our partner. And when sometimes that's not the answer, then we part ways and we're just happy to have that conversation because sometimes talking about it is that first step in making change and progress. I like the fact that you're the gatekeeper, if you will. Uh, the gatekeeper to the forest. I'm going to make a t-shirt that says that. I like it. I like it. Either. Yeah, you you are the gatekeeper. And, you know, that could be the, the title, Project mm-hmm. Forest, the gatekeepers to the forest. Yeah, I like it. The rewilding movement uh, is fairly new. We've had just, just before this, and actually this week, we had uh, a rewilding bee gentleman on, which has just blown people out of the water. Um, and wanted to find out, I want to say the pathway that you took from your forest background to this rewilding, because forestry is very linear with lines of trees and much like a farm field where everything's lined up. Um, I would imagine when you're rewilding, and I know that I would, is you plant trees, not so much in lines, but in more of a random fashion. Is that correct? Or Uh, Kind of. Um, It's not necessarily random, but what's important in the rewilding realm of things is species robustness and species diversity. And, And what's really meaningful for me personally is I have a traditional forestry skill set. I have a technical diploma and university degree, six years of schooling that taught us how to manage the landscape to produce lumber and, and or pulp. And, and I worked in that industry for a number of years. That's where I cut my teeth and, and learned, you know, how do we transition landscapes? How do we identify things called site-limiting factors, things that prevent seedling establishment? And then how do I mitigate them? And using that fundamental skill set, we still approach a site the same way, maybe after it's been harvested for lumber. 
but the end land use goal is considerably different, especially when we're working with conservation groups and indigenous communities. End land use goal for a, an old opening area that was harvested for a forest product company. Let's grow a straight tree as big and as fast as we can so we can cut it down again, right? And I mean, that's a sustainable business. Under the definition of sustainable, your impact is neutral. And in North America, we're really great at putting out forest fires. So it's an important part of the equation of managing forests while people are out there. When we start talking about rewilding in the terms of what Project Forest does, we're looking at a number of different factors. And we're talking about a diversity of plants that are incorporated into our plans to meet different and land use objectives. What do I want of my forever forest to look like 100 years from now? And how do I want it to be utilized? I want a number of different structures for the habitat and the critters. I want to make sure that I'm incorporating a variety of plants that can handle the climate change adaptations that we know are coming, hotter, drier summers, longer, colder winters. And that's always already been expressed in the last two or three seasons on, on many of our sites. We're going through another growth period right now, um, just of a number of weeks, with some pretty high temperatures and a, a very little amount of moisture. Um, and by planting, you know, 110,000 trees at our first project area of 11 different species, we have that robustness in place. Forest product company world, when I was working there, 110,000 trees, three species maximum. Sometimes it's just one, depending on what it is. Um, what grew there before grows there again. In the rewilding realm, I'm really trying to allow nature to use that site in the fullest extent. That's who we're managing it for. I'm managing that site for the critters. I'm managing that site for the soil. I'm managing that site to create recreational opportunities for me, my grandkids, my grandkids' grandkids, right? And in turn, we're also improving soil quality, water quality. That's the whole rewilding story. And you said you had a bee pollinator on the other day. When we plant things like willow in the boreal forest, that's somewhat of a flowering tree. The pollinators use willow first. Of all the plants out there, that, that's the first step in the pollination process throughout the year because those catkins are ready early in the spring before the flowers are in bloom. And we plant a lot of willow. We plant willow in the low areas because, I mean, I'm, I'm not there trying to make a two by four. I'm there creating habitat. If a moose comes or a deer comes and eats a willow tree, that's a success. And when we start talking about carbon, carbon's a result of doing rewilding well. It is not the number one priority of what Project Forest does. Project Forest incorporates that entire landscape into the plan to find the end land use objectives with the landowner, again, the conservation group or the indigenous community, and then build a plan that kind of represents their vision. And when we execute excellently, trees will grow, forests will be created, and we can use some modeling that relatively accurately predicts how much carbon will sequestered over the life of that forest. And the indigenous populations that you're working with, I would imagine that they're very excited about the work that you're doing because of their own knowledge of woodlands and and how they develop. Are they an integral part of the planning process or how does that work? Essential part of the planning process. And, uh, and I'm really glad you asked that question because our, our first project area called Project Forest Swan River Ecological Reconciliation Project, just on the South Shore of Lester Slave Lake in Northern Alberta, has been very monumental in the way that Project Forest will continue to do business in the future. Now, when we talk about rewilding and the fundamental of the assessment of forest show up on a site, 
regardless of the landowner, I'm still looking for the same thing. What are the site limiting factors? Is there going to be too much vegetation? Are there going to be noxious weeds? Is there too much water? Is the soil compacted? Regardless of what those things are, and there's other site limiting factors, we come up with a mitigation plan, set the site up for success. But when we're dealing with our Indigenous communities and our partners there, there's a, a consultation process and a conversation that happens. And when we started working with Dustin Twin, council member at Swan River First Nation, he's like, hey, Mike, we want to do a couple things differently here. Um, they had done something called a food gathering study to really understand the food that had been used traditionally with their community members, you know, for thousands of years. Taking that information and reincorporating that into a rewilding plan allows us to, you know, hit a really big objective for the community, which is reestablishing traditional foods back onto the landscape. And we were able to do that. Again, in an area of about 34 hectares, 90 acres, 69,000 plants, 10 different species. Five of them all being tree species, one of them being red willow, which is a very important part of their cultural ceremonies used in the sweats. Tamarack, one of the best trees because it grows super straight, amazing for teepee poles. And in that part of the world, white spruce had been removed a long time ago, um, historically from the logging companies and wasn't replaced. So it's kind of the forest that is there now isn't necessarily natural, so to speak, um, because when harvesting on private land, the rules are a little bit different. So paid some money, logged, and, and then the companies never had to replace them in that part of the world. So we added 30,000 white spruce to the plant, right? Coming back next year in the spring of 2023, we'll be adding the 13,000 medicinally, culturally, and food-bearing plants of significance. And after engagement with the community members, we figured out what they were. Now, as that field transitions from field to forest, and these plants start to establish and the community members start to utilize in a more traditional way, the second objective there is to reestablish traditional land use opportunities for the community members. And what that kind of looks like is what we learned through conversations is Western Mountain Ash is a very important tree in that part of the world. All of the significance has not been shared with me. I, I'm a big proponent of not necessarily asking and just waiting for information to be shared. To me, it's a, you know, trust is a super important part and I don't want to pry too much. When I'm ready to receive the information, it, it will show up through conversation organically. But mountain ash being such an important plant out there, people have been coming across, you know, what is referred to as North America or in the indigenous culture, Turtle Island for thousands of years to the Swan Hills region of Alberta to collect berries and, and bark and roots from mountain ash. And instead of having to go for a drive five hours down the highway and you know, walk four hours through the forest to find a special tree, we're going to plant 3,000 of them next year on this project location. It's 15 minutes away from the band office. The community elders and the community youth are going to be able to go for a quick drive from school, transfer that knowledge, practice some ceremony, and really have a place close to home in their own backyard of a known location to complete this important work. And all that stuff is being funded by our partners. The, the true heroes of the Project Forest story, um, it's not me. It is the people that step up to the plate and fund this work. And that's what's really important to us. This work that we do is not possible without our partners contributing. We're a nonprofit organization, right? We're, we're here to rewild. We're here to create these natural assets on behalf of the landowner. And then we leverage our partner, our Project Forest partner community to fund that work. And they get the benefit for it. And that's how we kind of tie everything together while creating this community. Wow. That gave me goosebumps when you were telling me about the Indigenous people. It's beyond what I was thinking. And, you know, just uh, to point yourself and maybe some of your viewers in, in a direction to learn a little bit more about that particular project, our LinkedIn page, projectforest.ca on LinkedIn is the best place to find some of our resources. 
Emblem Swan River First Nation and Project Forest made a two-minute video really summarizing the work that we did efficiently and well. Go visit us on that LinkedIn page. I keep that video pinned to the top. And just take a listen. For those of you wondering what I look like, you'll see there. And then you'll meet Dustin Twin, um, council member, who's really been monumental in the way I perceive our rewilding work, coupled by a book that I read on the way home. I mean, Project Forest is more than just planting trees. We're about impacting community. We're about reciprocity. We're about responsibility. And as we started to meet the community members of Swan River, we were informed that one of the sacred plants, sweetgrass, was no longer on the reserve anymore. Project Forest has a pretty robust network of companies and people that we know. We sourced some sweetgrass seed, produced it in one of the nurseries, and donated it back to the community. And that was a pretty important story, a pretty important experience for everybody involved. But on the way home, I'm an audible guy. I'm pretty busy, but I spend a lot of time in the vehicle, so I listen to a lot of books. And I started listening to a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. I'm sure some of your folks and your listeners are familiar with it. Yeah. Changed our whole perspective. I've revamped all of our, our goals and all of our core values. And without that experience, I may not have started listening to that book, right? And it, it really is a game-changing way to look at the world. And that's how we try and incorporate that. I mean, you use the word traditional knowledge. I have Western knowledge. And when we start talking about those things and really learning about the history of plants and traditional uses, and, you know, Indigenous language is old. I mean, really, you know, it's thousands of years old and there are words in their language and I don't speak it, but very technical in nature, which demonstrate that understanding between planet, people, animals, and how that all comes together. And that doesn't happen without spending a lot of time on the land and learning and observing and taking that skill set and that knowledge base, incorporating into a traditional or sorry, into a Western civiculture skill set. We can make some pretty significant things happen when we work together and there's trust and we impact people's lives by planting trees they want. And, you know, when you asked me a question earlier about, you know, that transition from forestry to what I'm doing now, that's what really resonates with me. How do you help people by being a civiculture forester? It's not common. You can put people to work. That's about it, right? right? We can put people through university. But I'm able to use our skill set now and put food on people's table by planting Saskatoons, raspberries, blueberries, things like that. And it's it's pretty meaningful. Oh, that's those are important berries for making pemmican, which was was a critical food source for the trappers and hunters when they would travel pretty amazing stuff. And I, I want to give a shout out again to Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer. It's an excellent book. Anybody who's worked with Native people will absolutely love it. And if you haven't worked with Native people, this may help you to get involved um, with working with Native peoples. It's it's a, it's an incredible book. Hey, game changer, if we want to get yes. a trending thing going. It's, uh, yeah, 100%. And I mean, it took me a while to get through it because I was processing so much, but I'm doing more and more public presentations and keynotes. I read from that book, and the very last paragraph is, is something that I talk about in a big way before chatting about our core values. Somehow she did an incredible job in three sentences summarizing 300 pages. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's an incredible read or listen because she's a narrator too. So that's kind of cool to listen to the author's voice tell their story when they're effective at it. I had the opportunity to hear her speak at one of our Garden Communicators events and she had the whole audience crying. I can imagine. It must have been particularly nice, Mike, to listen to that book on Audible while you're on a long drive through 
the prairies of uh, Canada. Yeah, and after donating Sweetgrass back to the community of Swan River First Nation is when I started listening to it, right? I'm like, oh, it's just, uh, I had heard about the book. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm downloading it now. The data charges are what they are, and we're going to listen to this. It was about a three and a half hour drive to get home, and I was hooked. That's great. Uh, what was the site prep to get Sweetgrass established? just out of curiosity. No, no site prep in that particular area, just finding the right location. So Dustin chatted with a bunch of the elders, kind of was like, okay, where did sweetgrass grow before? Looked for a similar location and, and planted it there. And you know, the more I read from the book, the more I understood where it was supposed to be. But one of the more important things, I mean, site is important, but it's actually the tending and the picking of the sweetgrass and how it's picked. Um, when mm. it is somewhat neglected and left alone, sometimes it just leaves an area. But when that particular plant is utilized, picked, it grows better. And there, there's a whole passage in the book about how one of her students proved that through science and some of the challenges she had to overcome by trying to do traditional science as part of a master's thesis. Now, I notice uh, uh, you have some staff dedicated to propagation and seedlings. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the Project Forest group of, or family is the best way to put it. And I'll kind of talk about the origin story of, of Project Forest to answer your question. So when I kind of came up with this idea, I was managing the Reclamation Forestry Department for a consulting company called Tree Time Services. And Tree Time Services was founded in 2002 as a marketing agent for a group of nurseries called Coast to Coast Reforestation. There's five nurseries across the province of Alberta, produce between 50 and 60 million trees per year. Second largest seedling production group in, in Canada. So what happens very often when folks are Googling trees, they find our phone number. And people have been asking us for years, hey, Mike, I really want to buy some trees and I really want to plant them somewhere to do something good. I'm not sure if many of your listeners or yourselves heard about the fires in Fort McMurray a number of years ago. And like the whole city was evacuated. After that fire happened, people reached out and wanted to help in meaningful ways. And the phone started ringing a lot. Um, what your viewers can't see is there's province of Alberta behind me and there's a whole bunch of different colors. And what that basically is, is the seed zone of Alberta. You can't collect seed from an area like Edmonton, create a tree, drive five or six hours north and plant it. Provincial legislation doesn't allow us to do that. And then planting on public land is heavily regulated by the province. So there's a lot of people looking to do something good, but we didn't really have a vehicle to help them in a significant way. And when people start reaching out and asking the same question time and time and time again, when you're not asking for people to ask that question, okay, what are we missing here? And we started to do some market research and really identified a huge gap in the nonprofit world doing these rewilding and afforestation efforts in Canada and specifically in Alberta. There's people working all across the world. There's an amazing amount of work in Africa, Madagascar, and South America, and rightfully so. But why not here in our backyard? Um, so we wanted to create something where companies would be able to go out there and experience this with their employees and their families, actually touch it, actually have a real human experience with the work that they were funding. And we created Project Forest. So your question of having people dedicated to propagation and nursery production is through that tree time and coast to coast relationship. Project Forest has access to nursery space as needed, kind of preferred access, and also somewhat of an unlimited seed supply. Tree Time Services still collect seed. There's over 150 species of seeds stored in their own personal freezers and then access to other public seed banks held by the province. So one of the few groups that can source seed as needed, 
has a skill set to know where and how to collect it. It's at different times for different species. But we collect the seeds for the seed. The seed gets produced in a facility. And then we have the skill set to identify those site-limiting factors and transition the areas into a forest. So one of the few groups, if not the only group, that has all of that under one umbrella and a board of directors that have been responsible for deploying over 2 billion trees in their combined careers already. So to say that there is a site that we haven't seen um, probably doesn't exist, right? Like planting trees is a science. It's not rocket science. It's more of an art, the art and science of growing trees. And, and once you know what you need to do, you just do it and then manage the sites, monitor them and, and you know, upgrade if required. Globally, we're down seed planting across the board and we have a shortage of seed for trees. And if you have the access to that seed for your particular location on the planet, I think that's amazing. And when we come up with a species list and the seed doesn't exist, the skill sets to collect it and the Mm -hmm. knowledge of where to collect it exists. And it's something that is done every single year through our group of partners, right? So, I mean, that, that is not a situation that is a limiting factor for us. You know, there, there are certain plants out there that just don't have seed every single year. But, you know, just because you want 10 different species, sometimes it gets narrowed down to five and that's okay. It's just, all right, we collect as needed and then store them for as long as it makes sense. But seed is not a limiting factor for the work that we do. We're in a unique position there. So tree time services, just to, for clarification, a nonprofit or no? No, no. Tree time services is very much a normal for-profit business. And then started and invested to create Project Forest as a nonprofit entity. I see. So two completely separate organizations. And then as we were doing the market research, it was like, what's the best way to maximize the impact of Project Forest? And, you know, one of the things that I do when I budget for a site is we have annual monitoring plans. We visit every site once a year. Our first field season of data recording will be this fall. And all that information is going to be communicated on our website. But what's more important is I allocate a budget for a 25% fill plant on every project location. And as a nonprofit, it's super important to know that if I'm dialed in and every site is 100% successful and there's money left over in that particular pot of funds, that money gets used to executing the project forest mission, planting more trees, doing more speaking engagements. It's not going back to shareholders. And, And that's super important to partners who are funding us, you know, X amount of dollars per tree, depending on the project location. A certain percentage of that is in the contingency plan. And I know we're not going to be 100% successful. In Western Canada last year, 340 million trees were planted. A 95% success rate is the industry standard. But 5% of 340 million trees, it's a lot. And, yeah. and, and, the, and these failures aren't predictable. And it's going to be no different for me. And when we start having those failures, I'm fully funded at year one to go back and fix them. And, and just having that nonprofit corporate structure is very important because the money is protected and we're funded to do this work. And when there are dollars left over, which is the objective so that we can further the mission of Project Forest, we'll spend those dollars appropriately. Gotcha. Wow. So that, that monitoring plan, every, <laughs> it's important to me in a, in, a, in a big way. And that's kind of what sets us apart from other folks in the space. Project Forest does not plant a tree and walk away. And in my opinion, every planted tree is a good tree and some of them are going to live. I make a guarantee to landowners and I make a guarantee to our partners, especially the ones that join us to reduce their corporate carbon footprint. 
that the fields will transition into a mature forest. That takes management, that takes work, and sometimes that takes more trees. But I'm never going to come back to you and ask for more money because of the way we've set things up. And our procedures and the way that we approach rewilding is really based on fundamental forestry principles. We have registered professional foresters managing these sites. We know what we're doing and we know what it takes to get the work done. We're not only coming at this from you know the goodwill philanthropic perspective, we're budgeting appropriately so that we can execute the work the way that it needs to be done in the right way. The right tree, in the right place for the right reason. What are you up against? And it must be a fair amount in terms of deer browse, uh, heat, drought. I love 95% success rate, but are you able to get out and water? No, no. I mean, industrial forestry or what I'm doing is landscape restoration, right? Like when we're talking 130 acres, it's not practical or cost efficient to water. Yeah. But that's why we're using natural species. And that's why I'm using a robust species mix. Some plants out there can handle the drought and sometimes do thrive in in a water limiting situation. But we see areas of mortality. Our first project area, the one just east of Edmonton at Golden Ranches, I've visited a number of times this year. We haven't done our official survey yet, but it was planted later than I would traditionally like to because it was so hot and dry last year. This spring, the white birch broke bud in early May and we didn't have rain until June. And it was a pretty wet June, but then it got dry again. So those birch that broke bud a little bit are on schedule. Some of the leaves got burnt off and those trees are suffering. And then spring was good, but I was just out there earlier this week. And there's certainly some plants that are suffering. So when I do my survey in the fall, we'll actually get some real data. I'll be able to map out if there are significant patches. And then I'll say, okay, why do I think these plants didn't make it? If it was for drought, okay, we're going to come in and plant lodgepole pine. Bright pine like these hot, dry environments. And understanding you know, the specific needs of a plant that will be planted there are super important. And the ones that are thriving tell us right? If I know I planted 5,000 plants and I don't pick up one on the survey, probably not going to come and put that one back. But then there's certain species doing really, really well. That type of robustness is also used in collecting data and then you know, changing the path to, to learn and do things the right way. I would imagine too that when you go back out to look, you were learning an incredible amount of information from how the plants react, especially after a drought. Um, and you as a I would say like almost like a pilot, you're making sure that you're planting in the proper time frame that you know the plant will grab hold and establish before a drought comes or before some kind of major weather event will occur. And that gives you an edge over someone who doesn't know about when to plant and where to plant. Well, if if I could predict the weather perfectly, I'd be the best weather person on the planet. Um, But what I do know is there's hotter and drier times of the year. If we can plant in the spring, that's always preferable from the summer. But sometimes based on when we start growing the tree, spring planting is not an option for us. Uh, Again, another, another conversation about seedling physiology and timing. We plant dormant seedlings in Alberta between the 15th of May and the 15th of June. And we plant actively growing trees between July 1st and September 15th. And not to get into a technical conversation about the seedling physiology, but there's many reasons for that based on the number of light and temperature units that the seedlings require to go through the different growth processes. 
And I, th I think the information that you just gave us about the pines, that they are better at drought tolerance with drought tolerance and heat. And as our planet warms up, you'll be reflecting that in your mix or adding to it when need be. And I think that that's really amazing. And that follow-up is really critical for creating that healthy forest. And of course, the risk there is disease and insect. And I think a lot of folks are, are well aware of the mountain pine beetle epidemic that's been in Canada for a yeah. number of years. But that's why we're not just planting pine, right? right. There, there's a number of other species out there. Because just because the plants are doing good between, you know, year zero and 10, all right, what does that look like between year 10 and 100? And you, you got to have that robustness to deal with future events that aren't necessarily predictable. Well, one of the other things I'm thinking about is that with all these forests that you're planting, you're actually planting a seed store as well, because some trees take a hundred years before they start to produce. I know some of our oaks in the East here will take 50 years before they start producing acorns. So you'll have uh, a, even a, a larger uh, place to go for seed if you need to. I and mean, I think that's incredible. Yeah. And it, with our indigenous partners, they some of the food bearing plants and shrubs start producing food in year three. Right. So the act of getting these plants in the ground um, resonates and has value. But as early as year three, at some points in time, we're out there harvesting food and those berries are what you use to grow more trees. I mean, my father-in-law, I gave him some raspberry and he seems to have the greenest thumb of anybody I've ever met. And at year one, during a drought last year, he got 90% of raspberries to produce berries. I'm like, that's unheard of, right? But under the right conditions with enough water from a well, anything is possible. And I mean, how that's your question with watering, right? Like last yeah. summer was, it was a one in 100 year heat event that we had up here. And my father-in-law, I'll water those raspberries um, with an unreasonable amount of water, but man, did they do well. Um, and we, we had some pretty nice berry picking events out at, uh, at their acreage. Raspberry love. It was very much so, raspberry love. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he, uh, he, he has a couple small pieces of equipment, and he harvested, uh, or he, he moved a white spruce that was, call it, 10 feet, 15 feet in size with his excavator. And I'm like, what do you, if you do this, I don't think it's going to work. He's like, oh, I got it, Mike. And, like, that tree put on 25 inches this year. You know, some people just have that green thumb. I, I have a little winter garden going in my office here. I keep things growing inside. I kind of need to grow to manage my mental health. Um, Al just seems to uh, know exactly what to do with no training at all. And some people just have that knack, right? Well, I, I give a lot of credit to Wellwater. That sounds like a, a beautiful partnership there for a, a white spruce. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. You can do a lot of things with adequate moisture. I just want to get back to how does Project Forest market itself? For the next corporate partner and the next project and the next opportunity to give employees of a big corporation the opportunity to, uh, you know, get on their hands and knees and plant Western mountain ash, you know, a, an experience of a lifetime. Yeah, for sure. So right now, the area where all of our corporate planters have been is Project Forest Golden Ranches, which is about 30 minutes east of Edmonton on the south shore of Salt Cooking Lake. Your, your viewers can just Google the Golden Ranches Conservation Area and it will pop up. Why that's important is our corporate planting sites will be within one hour of a major municipality. The rest of the sites trying to be within an hour of a city center, urban center, but urban center has a pretty loose definition. Swan River First Nation, 
they have 300 people that live there and Canuso is the closest town. People aren't going to travel four hours north to plant that particular location. So we got that corporate experience. We're working diligently um, with some groups around Calgary, which is not the provincial capital, but the business capital of the province. A lot of decision makers are headquartered there. We're going to have a corporate planting opportunity in 2023 near Calgary, hopefully with one of our future Indigenous partners down there. We'll continue to plant at Gold Ranches. To market and to get more partners, we identify our sites and we're coming up with a unique story for each one. When we work with our landowner, okay, what do you want? What do we need? What does this look like? This year, we created a food and medicine forest. Pretty spectacular initiative. That one's called the Project Forest Cumberland Cree Nation Food and Medicine Forest. Cumberland Cree Nation is on the Saskatchewan-Manitoba border, so it's actually about nine or ten hours east of Edmonton. That particular community has no shortage of trees. It's actually an over-mature forest. So I met with the chief. I showed him some pictures of raspberry and rose. I was like, I used to eat these as a kid, but they're not here anymore. Let's create a food medicine forest. The particular objectives of that project, we communicate. We're going to be creating a shelter belt with the First Nation community where a highway goes through most of the houses. It's in a dry, windy area. I can use specific trees that will grow there. The value of that particular project is these trees will create shade. They will create shelter. They will reduce noise and give these folks privacy. Plus, in between the rows of the shelter belt, we're going to be planting food-bearing plants and shrubs. So there's going to be a forest garden in everybody's backyard. And when we start to bring those projects online and tell the story, then we use social media platforms to really communicate what we have going. I attend conferences, we have a booth, and I'm always looking for speaking events publicly or like this. When I can get in front of people and tell the story, I can motivate people and inspire people to step up to the plate and help fund this work. So there's kind of two sides of the coin. We have to identify the projects, and then we have to build a really compelling story about why these projects should be funded. And the Project Forest Board of Directors has said, hey, Mike, we want three to 5,000 hectares of land under our umbrella so we can start doing some much more strategic planning instead of a la carte projects. We're a relatively new organization. In our first year, our first field season was 2021. I would have been exceptionally happy to be fully funded in one project area. We were fully funded in three. What that did was kind of create a little bit of a gap this year because I didn't have as much land as I thought I would because 2021 ate it all up. So that's a good problem to solve. Moving forward, um, we're on track this year like to move from hectares to acres, multiply by 2.4. So 3,000 hectares is about 7,000 acres of land is what the target would be. And once we have that under our umbrella, okay, no more a la carte planning, work with the community, start scheduling things out building budgets, and really operating in a much more efficient manner. And as that comes together, we have planning processes in place, Hal, that, okay, when we bring a project online, this is how and this is where we communicate it. This is when it goes on the website, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm hearing is every project is unique. Very much so. And you have a lot of creative leverage or uh, ability to kind of take it in a direction to meet the needs of a specific client. I mean, I love the image of the the food and medicine garden. Actually, come to think of it, there isn't a community worldwide that couldn't benefit from something like that. Truer words have rarely been spoken. Yeah. What irks me as as a tree guy, why are all these boulevard trees not apple trees? or walnut trees, or or like a big cherry tree. It seems like a a wasted opportunity. Or in like a schoolyard, you know, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of kids that go to school and don't have food. Go to the schoolyard and grab an apple, man. 
Like, why, why can't we be more strategic with these plants we're using in urban situations to help feed people? We, yeah. we do here in Philadelphia, we have an organization called the Philly Orchard Project, POP. And uh, that was my birthday thing for people to donate to them because they do just what you're talking about. They plant on, you know, abandoned lots and they plant in parks, in cemeteries, and they do an, an incredible job producing food. That model could be taken and replicated across the globe because it's so successful. And you're right. That's you're, what you're doing. The medicinal forest in particular is, is incredible. I mean, the, the more I learn about traditional uses of plants, the forest is a pharmacy. I mean, there were not pharmacies out here a thousand years ago and people thrived. And, and, and when I get an opportunity to tour these areas with um, some folks that really know this stuff, it blows me away. I mean, if you're, you, you want to look up some cool plants, look up plantain. You know, plantain is is the the plant that could cure humanity is is one of the quotes that um, I have written down on my phone. It's amazing. I, I am not the expert to have that podcast with, but there is an incredible amount of ability to improve human health by knowing which plants to use. But when I have a corporate planting event, we take people on a nature walk and I introduce them to this on a really high level. And the important part there for me is just to actually start having a new appreciation for the forest. What irks me again, um, you're, you're bringing up some of my pet peeves here, Eva, I appreciate it. Bring um, it on. Is Bring it, yeah, we're happy to hear the pet peeves. <laughs> in, in traditional forestry education, these traditional uses of plants and medicines are skimmed. At the, like, the tip of the iceberg isn't even it. It's like, okay, here's your plant book. There's a paragraph about each plant. Know that it's there, but we're not going to teach you about it. And when people are coming through post-secondary institutions as foresters specifically, really foresters are folks that manage landscapes. They're harvesting significant areas of land and they're reforesting it and they're making important decisions that affect everybody, whether you live there or not. And the more and more I start to understand about the ability of plants and all of their uses, I see the forest through a different lens now. I make different decisions and the fact that that's not a part of post-secondary education is a huge miss. Also, I don't know what the rules are in America, and I know there's a significantly larger portion of private land harvested than the public land that we have up here. Indigenous consultation is a part of every single planning operation. And if you come in there with no knowledge, how are you expected to have a meaningful conversation? This should be a part of our education. There's no reason it could be a part of our education starting, you know, when we're 10 years old, but it's not. You know, the book um, by Susan Smard um, called Finding the Mother Tree, uh, she, she's a timber person in Oregon. I think it's in Oregon. Uh, it's where, on my Audible list. I haven't listened oh to it, gosh, but I just downloaded got, on you, my phone. You've got to listen to that because she will blow you away because she finds the trees that are feeding each other when one is dry, the other one can give the other one water and so on and so forth. Or when one's struggling because of some insect, the other one's giving, and it doesn't have to be the same species. It's a different species. And you re start reading that and, you know, people thought she was crazy when she brought, when she started talking about saving this tree, if you're going to be planting a, a whole timber forest here, because this tree is going to help the timber trees to grow. And that was just eye-opening. Yeah, there, there, there's that story reminds me of when I was graduating from my technical diploma a couple of years ago. We're done. And the professor's like, yeah, you guys think you know everything because you're about to be grads, but you know nothing. 
And then the more you get to know, the more you know that you know less and less and less. And when people start chatting about that, you're like, man, are, are we as a population so far behind in understanding natural sciences, right? Yeah. There's an incredible amount of positive change that is about to come in our future. And I'm excited to be a part of that conversation and you know, help learn and inspire people to get in the field, right? I mean, every time I have a corporate planting event, normally when it's, it's the employees, not the executives, because they're pretty well compensated, not necessarily looking for different careers. The employees come and there's always one person that comes up like, hey, Mike, how do I get into tree planting? Mm-hmm. Right? Like that question doesn't happen if people aren't inspired. And even that question is like, okay, well, we we had an impact today and that's the goal. Well, I'm so glad you have inspired our listeners and us today. That time went by so quickly. But we do want to ask you your favorite tree or group of trees because, uh, and I know it changes, it can change throughout your lifetime, but for our listeners, what? I I love trees with big cones. And for those who can't see my screen, you can kind of see on top of my desk. Those are some Coulter pine cones that were collected north of Palm Springs in California. There's a few of us in the office um, travel down there every now and then, and there's a competition who can get the biggest cone. Um, (laughs) I'm not winning, but I mean, those are, they're like 10 pound cones. I, I just think any plant that's able to produce something like that is really cool. Um, but not only is what my favorite tree, if we have a minute, I'll share a tree story. Project Forest did a little contest a few years ago about share your tree story with us. And what I've learned is everybody has a tree story. Trees are unique and special to everybody. And man, I asked this question in the middle of COVID and we had some pretty emotional responses come out. Um, and I share these during some of my public speaking presentations. Well, I mean, without my wife's permission, I'm going to share her tree story because it's pretty special. And, you know, I, I am assuming a lot of folks across America also get an Arbor Day tree in grade one. And, and, and my wife's name is Rhonda. And when she got her tree, her and her dad planted in the front yard of their old house. And when they sold that house and moved out to the acreage, I mean, Rhonda's the same age as me. We're in our 40s. She was devastated and super scared that the new homeowners might knock that tree down. So we went out there, we collected a bunch of cones because the tree was producing cones. And I talked to the guys in the nursery, I'm like, hey, can you grow some grandbaby trees for us? And we did. We produced 60 trees from that tree that Rhonda planted in grade one and planted it at her parents' new place, right? And just like that connection to trees, um, the more I ask that question and everybody listening, I mean, obviously you're not going to talk about it, but just think what, what is not necessarily, what's your favorite tree, but what's your tree story? There is a subconscious connection to nature with everybody um, for a number of different reasons. And that's something that we can connect to. And when you think about it, we can, we can make a difference when we come together and, and work on things like Project Forest. Well said, well said. Uh- Tell me the name of those pine cones again behind you, the 10-pounder. Coulter pine. Coulter. Coulter. Yeah. Coulter pine. Yeah. Yeah. I have one sitting in my, I have a, I have several big baskets in my living room filled with cones, oh. all different shapes and sizes because I teach woody plants. And I just love finding the next best cone. Well, there's a, I mean, walking through the forest is kind of dangerous because these things are falling down. So you got to kind of like, it hits you in the head. It's, it's not going to tickle. But I, I forget, there's, I think it's Linwood or something. It's about an hour, hour and a half north Palm Springs in the mountains. Um, there's a state forest there where, you know, there's a ton of these trees and they're, they're magnificent and pretty cool. And the, the seed, man, like the seeds are huge. Well, they should be. It's a 10 pound cone. 
That's just me. I'm a tree guy though, right? Like I spent some time working in the prairies and I hated it. It's too loud and windy. I got to be in the forest where it's quiet and you can hear the leaves and the needles rustling in the wind. <laughs> that's great. That's your, that's your tree story right there. <laughs> I spent a little bit of time working in the prairies on some reclamation stuff. And I found out I am more afraid of ticks than I am of bears. Right. When you talk to ranchers, okay, being out in the prairies, getting on the horse and, you know, rounding up cattle, that's the most important thing. And I get it. But a tree guy shouldn't be in the prairies. And that, and I, and I learned that in a, in a very meaningful way. <laughs> well, thanks again, Mike, for being on our podcast. We wish you the very best and continued success with tree planting in Canada. We really appreciate it. Thanks. I learned a lot. Yeah, and uh, and so did I. I mean, and folks like you guys running this podcast, it's of monumental importance for this worldwide initiative. I mean, the One Trillion Tree Podcast, it takes people like you to spread the message. And I appreciate the opportunity to come chat with your folks. And hopefully your listeners have a question to reach out. We're pretty easy to find, projectforest.ca. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook. Send us an email, info at projectforest.ca, and let's schedule a chat and see if there's an opportunity to... Uh, rewild some landscapes very cool very cool thank you so much good luck to you thank you take care thanks mike bye-bye bye-bye the planet trillion trees podcast is edited by andromedan recordings in hollywood california Thank you.